0: What is humanity's greatest need? Is it food? The lack of food? Perhaps it's the lack of shelter. Perhaps the greatest need for humanity is better health care or more security, more safety. What humanity needs perhaps is more education. Friends, all of these are often solutions that the world offers to a hurting world. No one in this world will doubt that humanity is in need, that it is lacking. The question for us this morning is what is humanity's greatest need? What is its supreme need? What is the need that rises above all other needs? Well friends, according to the scripture, our greatest need is reconciliation. Not merely reconciliation with one another, as if world peace was what would save humanity. Humanity. That if we would just get along with one another, if we would just love one another like John Lennon would sing, that all we need is love. If we just love one another, we'd get along with one another, then humanity would be saved. But see, the Bible tells us that the great need of humanity is not reconciliation with one another, but rather reconciliation with God see, God, we've learned in this letter, is a creator. God created each one of us in his image. That means that each one of us reflect his character, whether or not we acknowledge him as creator. There are men and women across this globe who are created in the image of God, who are valuable creatures, who are worthy of dignity and respect, but yet whom reject God as creator? The Bible tells us that the very fact that we need reconciliation, to be reconciled with God and with one another, means that we are, with, we are at war with God. To say we need to be reconciled with somebody is to say that we are at enmity with somebody, that we are at war with somebody, that we are not at peace. And so to say that we need to be reconciled to God is to say that we are at enmity, we are at war with God, we as sinners hate God. And the Bible tells us that if we do not reconcile with God, if God is not reconciled to us, then we will be condemned to eternal judgment. In other words, if we don't receive peace with God now, then we will never experience peace with God in eternity, that we will forever be at war with God And here's the problem, brothers and sisters, to be at war with an eternal God means that that war goes on for eternity. And apart from some intervention, apart from some peace accord, we are desperate and helpless. This is the story of the Bible, about how a creator God would reconcile with a creation lived in rebellion against God. This is what the letter of Colossians is about, about celebrating this great cosmic reconciliation between the Creator and His creation. But it's not that God just woke up one morning and said, well, you know, I'm tired of being angry all the time. I'm tired of being grumpy. I don't want to judge these poor creatures anymore. I guess I'll just give them a pass. That is not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says that God dealt with our sin, our rebellion, by condemning His own Son. And as we'll see this morning, Jesus is the currency that buys our reconciliation with God. That God is no longer at war with us because He satisfied His anger in His Son. He punished His Son in our place. Well, as the Apostle Paul draws this chapter to an end and to a conclusion, I want to remind you what he's been doing. Well, he began in prayer. He was praying for the church. He prayed for the Colossians. He's never met this congregation before. The only uh, real knowledge that he has of them is from their pastor. Their pastor has traveled from Colossae to rome to meet with the apostle paul he's in prison this is his first imprisonment what's recorded by luke in the end of the the letter or the the letter of acts there at the end luke records that paul's been imprisoned and epaphras their pastor comes and visits with the apostle paul to get some pastoral advice on some challenges that he was facing in the congregation and as epaphras comes he begins to tell Uh, The Apostle Paul about the love that they have for one another this congregation was a Christian congregation And therefore the one virtue they were known for was their love for one another But more than that they were known for their faith They had a tremendous faith, but you see their faith had become shaky it had become fuzzy It had become fickle because false teachers had crept into the church and began to draw them away from the hope of the gospel You see, that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to knock us off our game, to get us off the rock that is Christ. He wants to draw us off of the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. And so, they were being tempted to find their hope in things like asceticism, or the worship of angels, or good works, obedience, rather than finished faith in Christ. And so, Paul here begins this letter by praying that they would grow in the knowledge of God. That the remedy to false teaching was true doctrine. And so Paul here prays for them, but as he prays, he launches into thanksgiving. And and often as we read this letter, we think that Paul just sort of leaves thanksgiving behind in verses 9 through 14. But rather, his thanksgiving continues all the way through the end of this chapter. As he thanks God for, for this cosmic reconciliation, uh, and pinnacled in the Christology that we considered last week. But here, we see that Paul then now turns to apply the high Christology of verses 15 through 20 to the reconciling work of God in Christ. In other words, we want to have a big God to deal with our big problem. We have a big problem, don't we? Sin is a big deal. It's not something that can simply be swept under the rug. It has to be dealt with. Lest it come crawling back out from that rug. It has to be dealt with. Finished and fully and finally. And so Paul says that Christ Jesus is the one who can deal with it. As he did in that Christ hymn. Well friends, with this in mind, we want to turn now to some application of... The person work of Christ. What does it mean that Christ is the creator and the head of the church? What, what does that mean practically for our lives? Well, this is what we read in verses 21 through 23. So I invite you to turn there if you've not done so already. It should be around page 983 in your pew Bibles. Let me just encourage you to grab that Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you take that as a gift from our congregation to you. You have that. We we just want to commend the reading of that regularly. Um, You could read through this letter every day and get to know God better through his word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And you all who once were alienated and hostile in mind, What's Paul's point? When way of application, Paul says that Christians have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ and therefore depend upon Christ for their eternal hope in the gospel. So this this application here is a call to renew our hope, our eternal hope, in the work of Christ, to exhort us, if you will, to perseverance. This is what the Apostle Paul does. He says, listen, if you continue in the faith, if you persevere in the faith, then these things are true of you. And so if you look at your Bible here, you'll see in verse 21, Paul gives them a picture of their past. And then in verse 23, he shows them a picture of the present. And then verse 23, he shows them their future. So we see these sort of three aspects of our hope through the gospel. First, we see a, that we were separated by sin. Second, that we were reconciled by death. And third, that we are steadfast by faith. These are the three points. If you take notes this morning, separated by sin, reconciled by death, and steadfast by faith. This is what we're going to consider this morning. Number one, separated by sin. Paul begins, as he often does, by contrasting. Now I want you to see verse 21, and you. This is a second person plural. You all. He's writing to the whole congregation. He shifts from the impersonal pronouns to personal pronouns. He shifts from talking about Jesus in the third person to talking about the congregation. He's sort of, uh, if you will, like the preacher. He points the finger at them. Hey, you, I'm talking to you this morning, he says. I'm talking to you all. This is you all. It's a universal description. This isn't just a subset of humanity. Rather, this is a universal description of all Christians. Every Christian, this is your story. We have one story, it's the same story, separated by sin, Paul says. Who once were alienated. Notice here the way Paul sets up the argument, verses 21 and 23, he says, who once were, verse 22, he has now done. It's a customary to what Paul does in Ephesians 2. For example, he'll he'll begin Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then later in the chapter, but now something has happened. In other words, Paul emphasizes their past in order to get to the glory of the present. You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is meaningless if we don't have sin. As we've been studying in Romans chapter 8, that, re- that, that no condemnation for those who are in Christ makes no sense if we're not condemned through the law. Without the giving of the law, there is no exposure, no recognition of sin and rebellion against God. But notice what he says. This is what he says. That you are once alienated. Alienated. Paul here describes a situation where this congregation is completely alienated. Alienated from whom? Alienated from God friend, this is a customary description of how the Bible describes the state of humanity, alienated. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and see there a depiction of man's relationship to God after sin. What happens? They're cast out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve don't get to to continue to perpetuate this relationship with God. No, their sin separated them from God. And the cherubim, them guard then access to the Garden. They're separated because of their sin. Notice here in this passage, it is a passive voice. You were alienated. You didn't alienate yourself, God alienated himself from you. You see, God didn't leave the Garden of Eden, God sent man out of the Garden of Eden. He says, get out. They were shut out, they were separated from, they were unable to enter into the presence of God. Now why has man been alienated? Why is it that we are separated from God? Well, look what he says there in verse 21. Hostile in mind. Hostile to whom? This is a strange description. Perhaps this morning, if you're not a Christian, you don't understand yourself to be at hostility to God. I'm not angry with God. I don't have anything against this God that you have sung about today. I don't have a problem with Him. As long as He leaves me alone, I'll, I'll leave Him alone. We see, because God is our Creator As Paul argued in verses 15 through 20, that there is a relationship that's created. If you make something, you get to decide the purpose of your creation. If you build something, you get to decide what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be used. And it's no different than humanity. That God chose to create us in a certain way, for a certain purpose. And when we rebel against that, in choosing to live life our own way, we are saying, God, you are no longer God, and we are. This is similar to what Paul tells the church in Ephesus. In chapter 4, and verse 18. That they are darkened in their understanding... Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. To be hostile in mind is to be at enmity with God. It is not merely in our heads, brothers and sisters. We understand before saving faith in Christ, it was in our hearts, our hearts were broken. It isn't, isn't it that the gospel comes along and is like a remodel project, you know, fixing up the, the good bone structure. If you've got a good structure, you know, remodel uh, uh, can be quite easy. Some cosmetic things needed to be done in our life. We need to clean up our behavior, not at all. The apostle, the apostle Paul presents here uh, the reality is that our minds were broken. We were bent on doing evil. If we had a choice between doing good and doing evil, we would choose evil. Now to be clear, the doctrine of depravity does not teach that man is as bad as he could be. Right? So, so not to say that we're like as bad as we could be, but rather that we choose to do evil. Our wills are bound, you see. friends, this is what Romans 1.21 says. Listen to the word of God. For although they knew God, they being humanity, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, humanity is an active rebellion against God every day. And Satan has created entire world systems built on and predicated by rebellion against God. That's that's why this world is broken and why Jesus is coming to destroy it. The point we want to understand this morning is that before coming to saving faith in Christ, it was not that we needed to improve ourselves, but we needed to be made new. We needed to be remade. As you heard earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, behold, the old has gone and the new has come. Humanity, because of sin, was estranged from God and active in rebelling, rebelling against their creator. As Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now we may be reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. One life exchanged for another. But notice here how Paul ends verse 21, or continues rather, verse 21, in forwarding this idea, alienated and hostile in mind, doing... Evil deeds. Now, now one Bible notates this in, in their translating notes. They say this, that this idea is taken as means, indicating the avenue through which hostility in the mind is revealed and made known. In other words, our act of doing evil is the fruit of a bad tree. We do evil because our hearts are evil. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment if you've ever pondered this reality. Who taught your infant to cry? Who taught your infant to cry as if they were the center of the universe, as if they were the point? Who taught them to do that? Who taught that toddler how to steal? Did they learn that from their brothers and sisters? Did they learn that by watching you do it? Who taught you to gossip? Who taught you to deceive? Is it just that we learn it from the environment in which we've been born into? Is it just an environmental issue? Not according to the scriptures. It's a human issue. You see, because Adam sinned, all men have sinned. It's an infection. It's a disease. And it's passed on from one generation to the next generation. It's in our DNA to rebel against a holy God. And we need a new DNA. We need new life. To the pure. Paul says to Titus, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. You see, it's a deep-seated problem. N.T. Wright says it this way, wrong thinking leads to sin, and sin to further mental corruption, so that the mind, still not totally ignorant of God's standards, finds itself applauding evil. It's a vicious cycle, friend." And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ and the gospel, we will just follow deeper and deeper into our hostility. But friend, where does this leave us? Well, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that you find yourself hopeless apart from Jesus. You see, this group of people here have gathered on this particular day to celebrate the reality that they are wicked and evil. And sinful. And all week they've wrestled with the temptation to live life their own way. But see, they've been born again and they have a new taste and a new desire. And they wrestle with the old desire and they seek to put to death the the flesh. You see, in this world, the hope that this world offers, friend, runs dry every morning. No alcohol can satisfy you. That's why you have to get up and drink more. That's why a drunk has to get up early in the morning and start drinking again because, well, the hope ran dry. That's why drugs never quite take the edge off. You you have to have more. It runs dry, you see. No amount of money will ever satisfy. That's why you always want more of it. You can have all the money in the world and still hunger for more. No amount of praise will keep you proud. No amount of praise from mom and dad. No amount of praise from those around you will will ever satisfy you, you see, because you need another fix, another high of praise. You live a proud life. It's because nothing in this world was ever created by God to satisfy you, only He was created to satisfy you. And the alienation that you feel, that you know deep down is true, the alienation that God has alienated you can only be satisfied through Jesus. True hope is found in the gospel of Christ. This is where you find peace and satisfaction. This is where the longings of your heart are, com- are completely and, and entirely quenched, friend. And this is what leads us then to our second point here. That our sin, re- that our rebellion, that living life our own way separated us from God, but that now he takes us to the present. For those that are in Christ, it is not this alienation that describes us, this separation that describes us. But look what he says there in verse 22. He has now reconciled. I could just preach all day right there that it is now. It's now. That our reconciliation with Jesus Christ is a present reality as much as it is a future reality. That's purpose. Notice what he says here. That the death of Christ was the currency that reconciled us to the Father. He has now, God has now, reconciled us. How? How is it that we've been reconciled with God? How is it that now our relationship with God has changed? What has happened? What what great change has occurred? Look there at verse 22. In his body of flesh by his death. Well, Paul's already mentioned this earlier in verse 20. Look what he wrote there. This is a way of reminder. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By what means, does Paul say? By the blood of his cross. Or as he'll say later in chapter 2, As he argues here in chapter 2 against a works righteousness, he says in verse 13, and you who are dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All right, great, thank you, I know that. Verse 14, by what means? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross of Christ was the currency that bought our freedom. Look back here at verse 22 again in our text this morning. In his body of flesh. That is, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He uses this word flesh intentionally. Uh, Often in in the New Testament, flesh is categorized negatively. It's it's a negative. The flesh is a reference to sinful humanity. And so Jesus came in human flesh as a representative of humanity. Now I've been talking about Adam and Adam's sin. And Adam was a federal head. He was a representative. He represented all of humanity. And so when Adam fell, everyone fell. And you might say, well man, if I was in the garden, I would have done better to Adam. I wouldn't have rebelled against God. No, you wouldn't have fooled you would have done the same thing Adam did. Every one of us would have. Adam was our representative, but there's a new representative. A new Adam has come, Paul says. And he's come in the likeness of human flesh to die the death that humanity deserves. Notice what he says, the body of flesh. He was our representative. This is what we call double imputation. That Jesus Christ was imputed our sinfulness, and we were imputed his righteousness. He received the penalty of our sin, and we received his perfect righteousness. But notice what Paul says. That the cross was the instrument of suffering. Jesus Christ died for Sin, not his own sin, not sin that he had committed in the flesh. No, Jesus was perfect. He perfectly followed the Father. He never sinned. When the Father sent him to the cross, he went willingly. He set his mind to the cross. He obeyed the Father perfectly. Where we fail, Jesus succeeded. But notice it was his death. Paul is pointing here to a big theological idea, and that is, stay with me, penal substitutionary atonement now you might say wow that's a that's a big word penal penalized he was he paid the penalty when jesus christ died on the cross he wasn't just dying as an example of suffering he wasn't we don't look to the cross and say wow what a great example to follow let's go die not at all He died as a penalty for man's sin, as our representative for all those who would repent and trust in Christ. He died as a representative of ours. He paid our true sin debt. Not just some fictitious sin debt, our actual sin debt, the sin. When we chose to willingly rebel against God, Jesus bled for that. When we enjoy sin in the secret of our own heart, Jesus bled on the Calvary's cross for that. That's what he's talking about. A a penal substitutionary. He died in our place as a substitute. Like the lamb in the Old Testament would die in, in place of the nation of Israel. So Jesus Christ died in our place by his death. But friends, his death brought about reconciliation because, and this is the point, penal substitutionary atonement. I told our Wednesday night Bible study in just a couple of weeks ago, the word atonement. If you would just look at that word to atone, at A T one. At one. Atonement means reconciled. That no longer are we separated by sin, but now that we are at one, we are atoned for. Friends, you see, the celebration of the gospel isn't merely that our sins are forgiven. That is a wonderful truth that we want to sing and celebrate. We're forgiven. But more than that, that we are now entered into a relationship with the eternal God of the universe. And so Jesus atoned in verse 23 with a purpose. And notice with me. The purpose. The purpose is to make us acceptable before God. As he goes on to say, in order that purpose statement to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As that lamb was presented to the priest and then ultimately sacrificed before God, that lamb was holy, separated, consecrated. It was without blemish. And through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not only forgiven of sin, but double imputation teaches us that we receive the righteousness of Christ so that we are now holy as Jesus is holy. Did you know that when God sees you today, if you are in Christ, he sees you as he sees Jesus? Your relationship with God is not based on your obedience to God. Christian, why do we fall back into worst righteousness so easily? Thinking that somehow God hears our prayers better because we were faithful this week. As if he wouldn't hear our prayer of confession this morning because we didn't read our Bible enough this week. Or we get these little thoughts in our minds like God doesn't love us because of our past. For he dealt with your past. Your past is as far as the east is from the west. You are no longer what you once were. This is a present reality. Brothers and sisters, let us worship this Christ. Let us draw near, not with fear and trepidation, but with hope and expectation, because Christ Jesus has dealt with our sin. Let us look finally here in this final point, very quickly, steadfast by faith. Our hope is not our past, but our hope is our future, isn't it? That what God has begun in us will continue into the future. That those who have been truly born again will endure to the end. This is what he says in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, for the modern English reader, you might think, well, my golly, this is a conditional statement. He says If. Well, not at all. That's not what the Apostle Paul has in mind, as if this was contingent upon our obedience. How could he co- go so quickly to say that Christ has finished the work? Oh, but, but you need to participate in it, as if it was some mixture of our obedience and, and our faith into the works of Christ. No, this is what the Roman Catholics wrongly teach. Paul here does not talk about some conditional dependency, but rather... To say it this way, those who have genuine saving faith endure to the end. That the fruit of a good tree bears fruit, and the fruit of a bad tree is bad. Paul here fully expects this congregation to endure. He is rather here offering a warning to those who do not endure. We must take this condition all the serious. And an exhortation to persevere. Friend, this is what we do as Christians. We call one another to get up and keep moving forward. How quickly we are to abandon those who fall. As Christians, our responsibility is to commend them. Get up, keep going. It is only those who get up and keep going who are the genuinely saved, Paul says. Now I want to offer you, very quickly, in these th- last three, this last verse, three things. First, steadfast because of a firm foundation. Paul here is calling us to perseverance. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We ought to be steadfast because of a firm foundation. Now let me, help, let me illustrate this very quickly for you, lest we get confused about faith. Now I want you to imagine for a moment, you decide out of some crazy whim, you say, you know, I, I, I'm tired of, of the heat, I want to go and uh, freeze my rear end off, and so I'm going to go north uh, during the wintertime, and I want to go north, and, and you know, you find a friend and this friend says to you, hey, I want to take you out to this lake, this pond, um, and, and during the wintertime it freezes over. Now you, you as a good Floridian, you're like, all right, let's go. I've never seen ice frozen over before. I want to see this. And so you go and your friend takes you and says, well, yes, every winter this thing freezes over. Come on out on the ice. And you say, well, I've never stepped on ice before in my life. What what guarantees do you have that we won't break through the ice? And your friend says, trust me. And so your friend goes before you confidently, having stood on this ice so many times before, knowing that that ice will hold. And you go out onto that lake, that frozen lake, and and lo and behold, you stand, but you're a little afraid. You're not sure. You hear some noises. You hear some cracking. And your friend says, it's okay, don't worry, that's normal. You'll hear some cracking when you first step out. But trust me, it will hold you. Now, the question I have for you this morning is this, which one has greater faith? Well, clearly the one who stepped out, but, but you see, both have faith. And the second question I want to a- I ask you this morning is, what kept them from falling into the icy lake below? What is it, their faith? No, it was the ice. You see, the ice is what kept them from falling into the water, not their faith. The shaky one or the strong one, both were held up by the ice. And so here Paul says, persevere, endure, because you have a steady foundation. The gospel will hold you. The rock, who is Christ, will hold you. We must stand. We ought to be steadfast because we are on a firm foundation. But we see also we ought to be steadfast because the gospel is and gives hope. Look what he says. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking, but rather confident expectation. The ice will hold me. I know it will. I don't know how it does it. Not quite sure I fully understand it. But I'm trusting that it will hold me for eternity. Finally, here he says that we ought to be steadfast because of the global spread of the gospel. You see, we persevere because we see and hear the gospel at work. We step out on the ice because we see and witness with our own eyes someone standing on the ice. And so it is with us. We persevere. We get out. Our faith grows because we see others trusting in Jesus Christ. And friend, this is the point. We grow weary as a church, and our faith grows weak when we grow weak in our evangelism and outreach. Paul here is exhorting the church to get their head out of the sand and look around at the world being transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say, church, let us get our heads lifted high off ourselves and on a community that needs to know Jesus. This church was planted in 1918 in this particular community, not so that we can come in here and have holy huddles, so that we can come in here, praise the name of Jesus, and take the gospel to this dying community. What is our great hope? What is humanity's great need? Is it that we just give them food? Is it that we give them a good show? Is it that we give them some good programs, and we do a little VBS and a little bait-and-switch? Know that we go sacrificially day in and day out, Monday through Friday, in the workplace, in the home, and we carry the gospel to the nations. But friends, we have no hope of taking the gospel to the nations if we won't take it to our neighbor. And you might somehow solely that conscience of yours by giving to Lottie Moon or giving to Annie Armstrong or sacrificially giving the offering, knowing that it's somebody you're kind of paying someone to do evangelism for you. But we don't do evangelism through proxy. We do evangelism by taking the hope of the gospel to the nations. That is our steadfastness, friends. We grow steadfast as we take this reconciling work. Paul encourages these Christians to persevere in the faith. He calls us with this message of reconciliation, to take it to others that we have the only hope of humanity's great need. What is humanity's greatest need? Well, I think Luther used a simple analogy to explain it. Martin Luther said this, He described the condition of a patient who was mortally ill. The doctor proclaimed that he had the medicine that would surely cure the man. The instant the medicine was administered, the doctor declared that the patient was well. At that instant, the patient was still sick. But as soon as the medicine passed his lips and entered his body and the patient began to get well, so it is with our reconciliation and justification, as soon as we truly believe, that very instant we start to get better. The process of becoming pure and holy is underway and its future completion certain. We were estranged by God, alienated, separated. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled. Friend, today is the day of salvation. This is the message by which we carry to the nations for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have in Christ. That our only hope is the finished work of Christ. That before the throne of God above stands our high priest,